Hello, and welcome to the First Baptist Hanford podcast. Our primary mission at FBH is to love God, love people, and serve the world. We hope that this weekly podcast will encourage you in your daily walk with Christ as we play for you our most recent sermon audio. Let's have a listen. Uh, my name is Peter Anderson. I'm the senior pastor here at FBH, and we're, uh, we're just excited to have you along with us as we start, or as we continue in our, uh, our series through the Gospel of John. And so before we get started, if you wouldn't mind grabbing your Bibles, either physical or digital or whatever uh, it is, and uh, flip to John chapter 2, verse 1. And as you're doing that, uh, I want to kind of set the stage for us today. Um, I need you all to know a... Uh, a little secret about me. I know, I know, it's worrisome. Uh, For most of my teenage life, and this is hard to say, I was a failure. I don't know why you're laughing. I was a failure. Let me tell you why. I I grew up, that is a joke. I grew up, uh, and uh, I grew up going to a little uh, country school. Um, We grew up outside of the city, and I didn't grow up on a farm or anything like that. We just happened to be out in the country. And so it was uh, all of the inconvenience of growing up in the country and none of the payoff of having like your own crops and that sort of thing. So I don't know what my parents were thinking, but that's where I grew up. Um, so we grew up out in the country and, and this school that I went to is called McSwain School. I was a proud McSwain Mustang. My mom still works at that school to this day. Um, and uh, it was a kindergarten through eighth grade school. Now, some of you in here are thinking, okay, okay, small country school, we're talking 20. 20, 30 people in a class or, or in a grade. Um, for, our, for us, our small country school was about 100 people in our graduating class, just to give you some context, 90 to 100 people or so. So in this entire school, K through 8, we had about 700, uh, 700 people. So as I was in school, though, in third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, I began to notice these really cool kids, right? Uh, At least in what my, I assumed they were cool, Uh, because they got to get out of class regularly. They came and they did like announcements classroom to classroom. They didn't have a a PA system or anything like that when I was younger. Um, And so they came classroom to classroom. I remember them interrupting teachers and saying, hi, can I make an announcement? And if my teacher was in a bad mood, the answer was no, you need to come back later. And then they left and I felt really bad for the student. Um, but they came class, they did those things. Uh, they were in charge of rallies. They put on the dances, like they did all of these things. And so of course I'm talking about the student council that was uh, made up of sixth, seventh and eighth graders. So obviously my school K through eighth, but, but it was a middle school. So sixth, seventh and eighth were, uh, were all involved. And so when I got to uh, the end of my fifth grade year, I got an opportunity to run for a very prestigious office. Very prestigious, it's a big deal. I got an opportunity to run for the sixth grade representative, everybody. I know, it's a really big deal. Think back, I mean, think back to when you were in middle school and think back to how much the sixth grade representative for your class impacted your lives today, right? <laughs> big deal. This is a big deal. So I decided that I was going to run. I was, uh, and again, small school. So I thought, hey, I'm a, I'm a relatively popular guy. Like I wasn't the coolest kid, but I also didn't have problems 
finding people to sit with at lunch and that sort of thing. So I thought to myself, you know what, this is going to be great. This is going to be fine. I'm going to run for sixth grade rep. I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to get elected to sixth grade rep, and I'm going to push forward the greatest change that McSwain School has ever seen as the voice of the sixth graders, right? These are all these delusions of grandeur that are going on in my head. And so I told, I'd start telling my friends, I'm like, hey, man, I'm, I'm running for sixth grade rep. And an interesting thing happened, happened. As I was telling my friends, my friends were like, what? That's great. Hey, I'm running too. <laughs> and then I told more people, and they're like, oh, really? Did you hear so-and-so was running? Did you hear so-and-so was running? And so when all was said and done, actually, uh, of my 92 people in my graduating class, my eighth grade class, when we were in fifth grade, uh, 15 of us were running for sixth grade rep. Which you think to yourself, okay, those are terrible odds. Or you think to yourself, that means I only need like 10 people to vote for me, and then I'm a shoo-in, right? So this, this is what's going on in my head, and I'm campaigning, and I'm doing all this stuff, and I gave a speech, which I'm so glad I don't remember what it was, because I'm sure it was a nightmare. Um, and then we go to vote, and everybody votes, and I proudly, you know, put my put my name down, and then I, uh, I go to lunch, and then I eagerly anticipate the returns on CNN later on, and uh, just kidding. Um, but then I go to lunch, and we're nervous, and we're waiting for the announcement to be made as to who the sixth grade representative was going to be. And I remember finding out at my lunch table, I was sitting at lunch with my friends, I remember finding out that I did not win. The, the position of sixth grade representative. And it's a scar that I carry deeply with me today. <laughs> but beyond that, I remember, and I remember being so sad. I was devastated, right? Absolutely devastated. My one shot, I'm a competitive person. I always want to be the winner. Like that's just the way that I'm wired. And so for me to lose a thing was devastating to me. And I remember uh, when I got home from school, my, my mom and my dad both worked. And so when I got home from school, I was by myself in my living room. And probably the most melodramatic pre-teenage angsty thing I could have done in my entire life was I, I got on my knees weeping and I looked up to the sky and I said, why me? Why me? Now, this would have been, wouldn't have been a, a big deal, okay, losing in sixth grade. But here's the problem with someone who's competitive, is that if you are competitive, you, go, you are going to continue to, what, compete. You keep doing it. So in sixth grade, I lost sixth grade rep. Seventh grade, I ran for treasurer-elect, which means you automatically became treasurer your eighth grade year, right? Ran for treasurer-elect. I lost that. Eighth grade, I ran. I did win in eighth grade. Okay, so that was a positive thing, positive thing. It was a third-party candidate, sucked some votes away from the other guy, and I ended up winning. Freshman year, I ran, lost that. Sophomore year, I ran, lost that. Junior year, I ran, lost that. Senior year, I ran. Who's laughing? This stings. <laughs> senior year, I ran, and in my senior year, I actually did uh, I did absolutely uh, a win my senior year, and it was only because I figured out I needed to stop running against people who were more popular than me. Who would have thought that those are the issues I was running on? Um, but obviously, the why God, why me portion was a complete and total overreaction. But in that moment, in that moment, I was completely and totally crushed. 
completely and totally crushed. Maybe you can remember something from your life when you were that age and you thought to yourself, man, this is the biggest deal ever. Maybe a girlfriend broke up with you and you thought, I'm never going to get over this. I was supposed to marry this girl, right? Or a boyfriend broke up with you or you didn't get your dream car or what? fill in the blank. Maybe that was you. But at the moment, in that time, you thought this is the biggest deal ever. My parents got home. I'm sure they tried to cheer me up. Probably told me I tried my best. I told me I was their favorite son. I hope my brother's listening online and heard that. But in that moment, I was crushed and nothing anybody did was going to be able to fix the fact that the trial I was walking through was a massive one. Now, maybe you have something in your life that you are personally walking through today. My assumption is if you consider it something you are walking through, it's probably a little bit bigger than the loss of the sixth grade representative in your junior high. But all of us have things that we're walking through. Some of us, those things are massive. Some of us, those things are minor inconveniences. I have to go to the DMV. (laughs) I will walk through that trial. (laughs) Or maybe it looks like divorce. Maybe it looks like uh, a sick spouse. Maybe it looks like the loss of a child. Maybe it looks like the loss of a job. All of us go through these trials. All of us walk through these in some way, every single person. And depending on your stage of life and things that you've walked through before, these could be a big deal to you or it may be a minor issue. But all of us have things we're walking through. And I think in our story today, it's gonna help us shed light on some of those things. And for those of you who have been around church for a while, in the beginning of John chapter two, we recognize that this is Jesus's first miracle. And so we're going to try to shed a little bit of a different light on it today. Because if you've been around church for a while, you have probably heard relatively the same sermon regarding this text a couple of different times. And hopefully we can come at it at a little bit of a uh, a different angle. So flip those Bibles open to John 2. We're going to read through the entire text. It's 12 verses. Try to stay with me. If not, grab some coffee and come on back. But we're going to read through all 12 verses, and then we're going to go back, and we're going to break them down. So starting in verse 1, it says this. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. Can I stop there in just a second? This is a term of endearment. When it says woman, it's not like woman, right? It's like, what? It's, it's a soft term of endearment. So don't like take your cues like at the way that you're personally reading this and like Jesus called someone woman, that's okay. No, that's different, okay? <laughs> woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Now, so I want you to think about these jars. Oftentimes when we think about it, we think about like, oh, a little pitcher, right? Little pitcher we pour stuff into, oh, water to wine. How are you going to do that? No, these are 20 to 30 gallon jars of water. So these things are massive. Verse seven, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. 
And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you've saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Canaan of, Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went to Capernaum with his mother and brother and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. So we can recognize that this miracle, like I said, is Jesus' first recorded miracle. His first recorded miracle. He may have done miracles before this. We, we aren't sure. They simply aren't recorded, though. Remember, Jesus is God from the beginning of creation. Jesus is also God as a baby. Jesus is also God as a preteen and a teenager and obviously as a man as well. So Jesus is always God. Now, I don't know, he may have recorded some other miracles. I mean, if I'm 12, year old, 12 years old and I'm God, and someone asked me to clean the dishes, I'm gonna take care of that real quick. Jesus, however, this is the first one that we have recorded. So we need to assume then that this miracle was recorded first for some reason. Maybe it was his first miracle. Maybe it was simply recorded first for whatever reason. But if we go back to John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, this is what we find. We find the purpose statement of the entire gospel of John in verses 30 and 31 of chapter 20. This is what it says. It says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So again, everything in this book has been recorded for this purpose, for us to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So as you're reading through John in your personal study, or as you're digging through John in your small groups, wherever it is, we need to recognize that everything that is recorded, all the stories that are recorded in this book is for the sake of us believing that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. So now knowing that, let's go back and break it down. Okay, John 2, 1 and 2, it says this. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. So the first thing, we, we need to get to a couple things, okay? And then we're going to get land on the, the, the big part. So a couple things. The first thing we need to understand is why it said on the third day. Okay, we need to understand when something gives us a timeline, when a story gives us a timeline, it's offering context to us. We weren't there. We don't understand the geography there. We don't understand the timing there. Are days the same thing that we consider days? Is travel time the same thing that, that the, the same length that it would, you know, take us to go somewhere. And so when it says on the third day, this is actually a pretty simple one. It took them two days to get to Cana in Galilee. And so as they traveled for two days on the third day is when all of this actually took place, okay? Secondly, we need to understand why it's important to note that his mama Mary was there with him, okay? Or why his mama Mary was even mentioned. Think about for a second the last wedding that you went to, okay? Think about it. Probably fun, you know, maybe some dancing and, you know, all the things that happen at weddings, whatever. 
But now I want you to think about the last time you were at a wedding with your mom, okay? Think about that, or a parent, or a sibling, okay? Get that in your head. Chances are that wedding was someone who was what? Related to you, right? They're related to you, or at the very least, a close family friend, someone you grew up calling uncle, even though they're not physically related to you in any way, right? That type of person. So we need to recognize that this wedding that Jesus is at is someone that he is probably related to. But most importantly, is that these verses give us some context as to where it was. It was in Cana in Galilee. We don't know a lot about this time, this town. It was probably close to Nazareth. Nazareth was Jesus' hometown, right? Can anything good come out of Nazareth is actually what Nathaniel said just a couple days before this. But as we're gonna find out in a second, Cana was a simple town with a big significance. Cana was a simple town with a big significance. So obviously we need to back up that statement because uh, to you and I, Cana has no significance. In the same way that if somebody not from Hanford or not from the Central Valley heard about the name Hanford, it would carry no significance with them. Even though this is where we live, this is our livelihood, this is where our families live. It is a massive deal to us. In the same way, we have no context for Cana or why it is a big deal in this story whatsoever. So why is it then significant? Let's look back to last week for a second, because last week we heard about the call of the disciples, okay? In John chapter one, verse 50, Jesus tells one of his new disciples, Nathanael, who was originally a skeptic about Jesus, right? Uh, uh, Andrew comes, nope, Philip comes, and he talks to Nathanael, and he says, hey, look, I found the Messiah. He's from Nazareth, and then Nathanael is like, Nazareth, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Andrew's like, nope. Philip's like, hey, come on back. Come meet him. Come meet him. And so Nathanael comes and he meets Jesus. And in John chapter 1, verse 50, after Nathanael says, I believe, it says this. You believe. This is Jesus talking. You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. So literally two days later, two days after this, our scene shifts to this simple town that you and I don't care about. But one guy who was a follower of Jesus, Nathaniel, it would have been huge because this is Nathaniel's hometown. So Nathaniel all of a sudden gets to see exactly what God is going to do, see exactly what Jesus had promised him in verse 50 when he says, you will see greater things than this. You'll see greater things than that. They immediately, Jesus immediately goes to Cana and Galilee and he's gonna show him something greater even than that. It didn't take very long for Jesus to fulfill his promise to, to Nathaniel. This is now the third day from the time on day three, two days after his promise to him to see greater things than these. And it's, no, and it's also no accident that this wedding was taking place in this small, simple, ins, relatively insignificant town known as Cana. It was just like Jesus to select a small, insignificant place to perform his first sign. Jesus wasn't drawn by, by big and flashy crowds. Jesus is oftentimes drawn to the 
meek, the small, the simple, the lowly. So it was this small village that would serve as the place of his first sign, just a couple days after meeting Nathaniel and taking him back to his hometown. An important application for that in us today, this is a sub point, if you will, you can take a note if you want to, but we need to, as believers, anticipate the promises that Jesus has for us, that Jesus says that he has for us. Too oftentimes you say, yep, I believe in Jesus. Yep, I'm a Christian. And we forget about all of the promises that he has for us, that you will do greater things even than this, that you will see greater things even than these. These promises that Jesus makes for us. You know, John even records the time frame here for us, which is a little bit strange because we don't see that every single time. We don't see that in every single story. It's not like a book that we open up, like a fictional book that we open up and it starts with a setting. It talks about place and location or anything like that. That's not the way this works. He's recording these stories. And so John even gives us a time frame for us to understand that, hey, immediately after Nathanael began to follow Jesus, we went straight to Cana and he showed Nathanael greater things than what he had shown him previously. The other application point here is to know that Jesus works his greatest miracles in insignificant settings. They're insignificant settings, like Cana, a small village that no one really knew about. He does one of his first great signs. This is important for us because last time I checked, none of us are rich or famous. You guys know I'm not famous. I failed five out of seven times in running for student council alone. But last I checked, none of us are rich or famous. We're people that, you know, the truth be told, no one really knows about. And that's okay, that's good. But in our search for significance, we need to recognize that we are significant even though our lives, who we are, are simple people. Significance doesn't come through the things that we do or our notoriety or our wins or anything like that. Our significance comes from Christ and Christ alone. And that's what we see going on here. So let's keep, uh, let's keep digging in. Go to verse three. Verse three says this. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. In Jewish life, wine was a symbol of joy. Wine was a symbol of celebration. One text uh, actually tells us that there is no rejoicing save with wine. So the wine running out at the wedding in Cana was literally a catastrophic dilemma. The host had the responsibility to supply the wine for the entire week long wedding. This wasn't an afternoon. This was a party that was going to last an entire week. This was a union of two families and the hosts had the responsibility of taking care of everybody for the week. So this would have been a pretty big embarrassment. But that being said, you think about, okay, they ran out of wine. They probably get over it. Maybe they're a little bit of ashamed. So simply speaking, wine running out was a simple issue with a big significance. 
Wine running out, and that's your next blank. Wine running out was a simple issue with a big significance. This was a simple problem. This issue really didn't require a miracle in any way, shape, or form. Think about last time you were hosting someone and you, and you ran out of something. I'm thinking probably moms here in the room more than dads, right? Ladies here in the room more than dads. You ran out of something or you're making cookies. and You're like, oh man, I need some sugar, right? And what do you do? You send your kid next door to go get some sugar, right? Because you don't want to do it because you're embarrassed. And the kids are like, I need some sugar. Can my mom have some sugar, right? I remember doing that so many times. I, I think our neighbors thought that we never went shopping, <laughs> because I was always going over there and asking for things. But that's what you do when you run out of something. You just simply go get it. This didn't require a miracle in any way, shape, or form. And so when you look at it in this context of Mary asking who? Her son to do what? Go get more wine. This doesn't seem that strange, right? Moms are like, oh, I've asked my kids to go get stuff all the time especially knowing that this was going to be a big deal and the fact that Jesus had his 12 disciples with him there. So now think about this, right? Parents, when you got kids over or you got your kids' friends over rather, and you're like, man, I've really been waiting to get that wood pile in the back cleaned up. This is more dads than moms. They're like, hey, my son has three friends over right now. You know what I'll do? I'll make him a deal. I'll say, hey, why don't you guys go straighten up that wood pile in the back and I'll take you guys for ice cream after that, right? And they're like, yeah, this is great. I can see the same thing happening here. Like Mary's like, hey, Jesus, you got your 12 friends with you? Can you guys like make yourself useful and go fill this wine up in some way? Can you take care of this problem for them? But Jesus's response is how we know that this was more than simply, hey, go get some more bottles of wine. This moment in time actually serves as a new chapter in the life of Jesus. Jesus at this point is no longer taking commands from anyone but Jesus is the one with authority here. No longer taking commands from his mom, but he is the authority figure here. And this has big significance because of the fact that it mattered to these individuals. This miracle has nothing to do with salvation. If this miracle didn't happen, Jesus still would have accomplished what he accomplished on the cross on our behalf. You think about this miracle, it's a weird place to start. It's a really weird place to start because you would assume, hey, first miracle, it's a wedding. There's a bunch of people around. Man, I can make a flashy statement all of a sudden, like real big, let's jump in. But instead he simply sees a need, something that is a big issue in these people's lives who are supposed to be hosting this wedding. He says, hey, I'll meet that need. So regardless of the fact that this was a simple issue, it had big, significant ramifications. So what does Jesus do then? Verse six, it says, nearby stood six water jars, six stone water jars, excuse me, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. So these are big daddy jars and they're stone and they're heavy. Hey, these would have been used. What would have happened is Jewish leaders or people who were keeping Jewish tradition, they would have walked up to these jars and they would have either leaned them over, they would have splashed it on them to clean their hands, to clean their feet. These were used for ceremonial washing. So these weren't things that you grabbed and you picked up and you walked around with, okay? That's not what we have happening here. These are things that are most likely stationary 
I mean, they're, they're absolutely massive. Verse seven, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And again, this isn't them getting a hose. This is them going to have to fetch water and fill those things up, okay? So this isn't like an immediate thing. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you saved the best till now. So you've been around church for a while. You recognize that, that commonly when this is preached on, this is a part of the section that is preached on and rightfully so because people would have started with the fancy wine. Impress all your guests, right? The top shelf wine and then slowly made their way down to the box wine when people could no longer, uh, their, their sense of taste was dulled because of the, the fact that they had had too much to drink. Verse 11, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the th signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. So the, the, the servants filled up these six stone jars capable of holding 20 to 30 gallons of water. And notice here how John kind of draws out the scene. Why is it that John highlights the amount of water these stone jars could hold? Why does he tell us the servants filled them all the way to the brim? Why does he bring up the fact that when the master of the feast tasted it, but didn't know where it came from, he immediately, immediately recognized how good it was and immediately went to the bridegroom, the one who would have been humiliated, the bridegroom, when the wine ran out with his compliments. So he tells the bridegroom that this wedding feast is way beyond any wedding feast that he has ever seen before. And like I said, the wine, uh, the best wine is usually drunk first, lesser quality wine brought out later. This feast, the wine just keeps flowing and getting better all the time. We should also notice that the water turned into wine in a way that was secret. You ever think about this? I hadn't really thought about it until I was doing my study and, and digging through it. Is that we don't know how or when the water turned to wine. Was it when the servants filled it, it was slowly being turned into wine? Was it when they were carrying it over, it got turned into wine? Did it look like water when they tasted it? It was actually wine? We don't know. This is completely and totally uh, left in secret. Jesus didn't pray a great prayer over the water, but simply by means of Christ's authority over all things, including the water, by the sheer will of the creator, that water was turned into wine. This is the first of Jesus' signs, it says in verse 11. Jesus did it at Cana in Galilee and he manifested his glory and his disciples believed him. But for each of us, we need to decide why this miracle is a big deal. I think our takeaway for the week needs to be this. Issues that have big, significant to, big significance to us have simple solutions for God. 
Issues that have big significance to us have simple solutions for God. So whatever it is each of us are walking through, we need to recognize that whether we are walking through failure as a sixth grade rep or we have a loved one walking through cancer, the solutions to God are indeed simple. That doesn't take away from what you're walking through. That doesn't take away from what you're struggling with. It actually gives credibility to the authority, to the grandness, to the awesomeness of God and who he is. The solutions, though, are ones that we talk about almost every single week. The challenges that I give as we walk out of this place, right? You could probably write a list and name most most of them. Simple solutions. Read your Bible. Put your faith in Christ's hand, not your own. Surround yourself with other believers so you're built up in prayer. Pray. The list goes on and on. The problem isn't that our problems are too big. The problem is is that we don't think Jesus can handle these things. And whether it's consciously or subconsciously, we're like, no, maybe it's it's this, this issue doesn't concern Jesus. I can handle this one. But oh, this big one. No, this is Jesus. This is yours. I'll give you this one. But I'll keep all the little ones because I don't want to inconvenience you. There's no such thing as inconvenience with Jesus. There's no such thing as inconvenience with God. You think he only has a, a low, like, like a certain amount of prayer requests that God can handle? Is that what we think? We're like, no, no, no. I, God, I'm sorry. I know you're busy. You got a lot of things going on right now. And so I don't need you to worry about my trip to the DMV, okay? I don't need you to worry about me being a sixth grade rep and my feelings regarding that. That's a, that's a small, minor issue. God doesn't have a capacity. And so because of that, we need to be willing to bring these things to the Lord. Psalm 55.2 actually tells us, says, cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous be shaken. Or Matthew 6, 25, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Or Matthew 11, 28 and 29, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. The Bible is incredibly clear. These burdens we are carrying, these issues that we are walking through, whether in the world's eyes, they're tiny and insignificant or massive. These are things that Jesus tells you, tells us to bring them to him. Cast your cares upon him. I will give you rest. Stop trying to do it all on your own. I will give you rest. Jesus calls us to give them to him, to stop with the trying harder and start with the relying harder. But in the same vein, these things we're carrying also need to be continually carried by us as well. This is a both and. It should be a a two-pronged, double whammy, bash brothers approach to the issues 
that it is that we're carrying. There's a famous quote, and it's attributed to a whole bunch of different people. So author, you figure it out. But it says, pray as though everything depended on God and work as though everything depended on you. Pray as though everything depended on God. We've established that, right? Give these cares to the Lord. Cast your burdens upon the Lord. Pray to God about the things that you are walking through. But then the second half of it is, work as though everything depended on you. So in these things, we have a responsibility as well. The question is, is what's that responsibility? Well, let's go back to the story. Our responsibility is the same as the servants in verse five, where it says, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. The words here are actually similar to other places that we find in scripture. Genesis 41, it says, when all Egypt began to feel the famine, the people cried to Pharaoh for food. And then Pharaoh told all the Egyptians, go to Joseph and what? Do what he tells you. 56, when the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph, not God, Joseph opened all the storehouses and Joseph sold the grain to the Egyptians for the famine when the famine was severe throughout Egypt. And all the world, all the world, all the known world came to Egypt to buy grain from who? Joseph, because the famine was severe everywhere. What we miss is the fact is that God gave Joseph a dream to be able to decipher. And as Joseph figured out that dream, he said, okay, now that I know what is going to happen, now what I know what God's plans are, I'm going to work in and through that to make sure that everybody is taken care of. See, God could have simply said, you know what? I'm not gonna have a famine. You know, we're gonna have actually 14 years of, of, of plenty. We're going to have so much grain that, man, everybody's going to be so sick of grain. It's going to be gross. They're going to want to go on Whole30 because they've had so much grain. <laughs> but just as Pharaoh tells the people to do whatever Joseph says because he had perfect confidence and a perfect trust in him during the time of famine, so to us, Jesus is the one to trust and obey and during the day when there is a famine of wine in this story, so to speak. The entire world came to Egypt because of food, because the storehouses were overflowing with food. And so too were the jars eventually overflowing with wine. And it was because Joseph both prayed to the Lord for vision and then worked his tail off in order to put a plan in place. But think about what it is that you're walking through. Think about the difficulty of the situation that it is that you're walking through. We need to recognize that whatever it is that we do, we need to be right in the middle of what God has called us to do in our prayer life as well as in our work life. Pray as it depends on God and work as it depends on you. We have a, uh, a couple in our church and I'll end with this. We have a couple in our church uh, named Mike and Lucy Watkins. Mike, where are you at today? You somewhere, Mike Watkins. And uh, Mike, a number of years ago, battled cancer. I wasn't here then. I think I was in high school then, Mike, not to age you at all. But Mike, a number of years ago, walked through cancer, and it was a very hard, arduous journey that Christ saw him through. Christ, supportive people, 
They saw him through it, and his testimony in and through that was an incredible one. Earlier this year, Mike and Lucy got news that Lucy now was going to be going through her own battle with cancer. So a number of years later, a number of years after, through this circumstance, through these things that they were walking through, through, through this hardship, this cancer that is like, it is a cuss word. It is the worst thing. I've walked through it with my own family. It is the worst thing. Mike and Lucy have been faithful. They have walked with the Lord consistently. And it is because of Mike's testimony in and through that, that he's able to speak into other people's lives. That being said, it's a whole lot different being able to come out on the other side and say, nope, I'm clean, I'm healthy, cancer's gone. And then you get the news that the person you love most in the entire world is gonna walk through the same exact thing. And so I know I've talked with Mike, I've talked with Lucy, and they, are, they say, you know what, God has this. Jesus has this. Jesus will be glorified in the midst of this. It's all about Jesus, it's not about us. Man, you wanna get encouraged? And you want to feel like your problems are small? Go have a conversation with Mike. But that's not to say that Mike and Lucy are only praying about this. Mike and Lucy are going to their doctors. Mike and Lucy are seeking, Lucy is seeking treatment. They're having people help them with meals every once in a while. (laughs) They're doing the things that they are supposed to do on our side of eternity, on our side of heaven. Because they recognize, yes, this starts first with God and Jesus is going to be glorified in the midst of this entire thing. That being said, we have a job to do on our side. So my challenge and my call to all of us today is one, identify what it is that you're walking through and ask yourself, have I prayed about this? Have I asked God to enter into this? Regardless of how big or how small, have I asked God into this? And then beyond that, after prayer, fasting, whatever it is that you need to do to hear the voice of God, what is it that you're doing to work like it entirely depended on you? Because church, I'm telling you, if every single one of us walked through our issues, and I'm not trying to put Mike on a pedestal, he would hate that. But if all of us walked through our issues in the same way that Mike was able to walk through his cancer treatment, the same way that him and Lucy are walking through Lucy's cancer treatment, there'd be a whole lot more people curious about Christianity. There'd be a whole lot more people uh, wanting to know why it is that Christians, especially in the midst of hardship, are being faithful to Christ. Why is it? What is it? And it's because of the fact that those things that may seem simple to us, maybe sometimes, or or may seem simple to the world and they're massive to us, have huge significance to us. And because of that, have huge significance to God. And so as we recognize that there is that significance there, we get to walk through it with grace. We get to walk through it with the proclamation of Christ on our lips and other people get to come to know Jesus in the same way that this story, while it's a simple miracle, has massive ramifications because of the fact that this is where Jesus made his glory known. And this miracle, like it says all the way back in verses 30 and 31, and this needs to be viewed through the lens of Jesus being known in the same way that the things that we are, each, each and every one of us are walking through, 
will allow us to make Jesus known in one way or another. Amen, church? Let's pray. Father, thankful. I'm thankful uh, for your word. And I'm thankful even for you know, Mike and Lucy and just pray for Lucy today um, and, um, as she's continuing to undergo treatment and continue, continuing to trust you and continuing to do the things that she's supposed to do as she rests and, and does all the things the doctors ask her to do. So God, we pray that you would heal her. We pray that you would remove that cancer from her body. But God, above even that, above healing, God, and I know this is Mike and Lucy's prayer as well, that your name would be glorified as they walk through it. That Jesus is about you, it's not about us. And I know, Father, that Lucy isn't the only one dealing with cancer, probably even in this room. Or people who have been affected by sickness and illness and disease and doesn't even have to be cancer. Whatever it is, the ailments that we're dealing with, Father, we recognize that, man, these are just mountains that are in front of us. They are so big to us, God, but regardless of how big they are to us, we recognize that, man, these are simple things for you, simple things for you to be able to, to work through, to fix. And so, God, I just pray today that that even as we think in this room about the burdens in which we are carrying, God, I pray that we would simply cast our cares upon you, that we would take up your yoke, as your scripture says. And God, maybe there's people in here who don't yet know who you are, don't yet know who your son is and what he did on the cross. And maybe they're carrying burdens as well, things that they need to, they're trying to work through, they've been trying to work through, and it just, it, it isn't going to work. God, I just pray that they would pray along with me to place their faith in you, that they would say, A, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I'm messed up, I've been trying to do it all on my own, and this burden that I am lifting, this burden that I'm carrying is too big. So God, I just, I need you to take it, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, and I believe, I be, I believe that you sent your Son to die on the cross for my sins and that he was raised again. He conquered death. And so, so I can be with you for eternity. I can make your name known today as I see, choose to follow you every single day of my life. That regardless of the burden, regardless of the hardship, regardless of the frustration, regardless of whatever, God, that I'm gonna choose to follow you and recognize that you are good. And my problems that seem significant to me, which are significant to me, are simple solutions for you. God, I pray that you would ease the burden of our hearts today. Father, we love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the FBH podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this week's sermon. Music was by the band Broke for Free, and if you would like more information about our church, feel free to check out fbhanford.org. That's fbhanford.org. Thank you again, and we'll see you next week.